Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, too. It's great to be, great to be worshiping with you. Um, today is Christ the King Sunday. And if you're, if you're less familiar with the church year, uh, that means this is the final Sunday in the flow of the church year. You know, the, the church year is just this way that Christians kind of mark seasons through the year to remember the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and uh, to in some way make the rhythm of Jesus' life the rhythm of our lives too. So the church year begins with Advent four Sundays prior to Christmas, uh, which this year will be next Sunday. And that's kind of a season of waiting and expectation. Then we move through Christmas and then, you know, on to onto Lent and Easter and then Pentecost and, and, and we go through the whole year like that. But the kind of climax and conclusion of that whole church calendar is today, Christ the King Sunday. And it's the day when Christians remember that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he did what he said he came to do, and that he right now is the reigning and ruling king of the universe. Not a religious idea. We have a king who's on the throne right now, and he's got it, right? He, he's got it. So today, the final Sunday of the church year, Christ the King Sunday. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a remember the big story kind of day. So we're going to do that this year and remember the big story of the scripture. And to do that, we're going to look at a couple passages, one from Exodus uh, that has been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, I'll unpack that in a little bit. And then we'll look also at a few verses from the Gospel of John. So, uh, yeah, Doug, come on up and let me pray for us before we read the scripture to you. Father, as we open the Bible, we know that uh, if left to ourselves, there's no way we can figure it out. Our uh, powers of reasoning are not sufficient to grasp who you are and what you've done. So would you reveal that to us. Please, God, reveal who you are and what you've done and help us uh, as broken people uh, have courage and faith to turn to you and receive what you want to give to us. So open us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. From Exodus 34, 1 through 7. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come up with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh, or the Lord. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Then from John 1, 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and, in the, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Doug. So a cool thing uh, happened right there. Uh, thanks that Doug and PJ are Bible translators working for Wycliffe, and he highlighted, unplanned, the exact thing we're going to talk about, which is the Lord's name. <laughs> but we'll get to that. Uh, so again, um, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, you know, we read that passage in, um, in Exodus, and that, that's a pretty big claim. And, and if you're less familiar with the Bible, uh, John 3.16 in the New Testament is a very famous passage. You know, people paint it on bed sheets and hang it over the ends of end zones at football games. John 3.16 and that kind of thing. Um, here, here's what it says if you don't uh, know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's referring to Jesus, of course, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And for those of us who've been in the church for a while, there's a familiarity factor here that I think starts to dull us. Uh, to, you know, we've read it and we read it and we're like, oh yeah, I know that. Um, but look at that. That is an amazing, stunning claim. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What? Really? It was amazing news. So to call a passage in the Old Testament, the John 3.16 of the New Testament, is a rather big deal, quite a big claim. In fact, verses 5 through 7 from that passage in Exodus that we read are very likely the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. That kind of makes sense? like the, the, the passage in the Bible that the most other parts of the Bible point back to and say, remember that? Look at that. Remember what happened here? This means that. John Mark Comer makes that claim in his book, God Has a Name, and he goes on to describe the significance of what's going on in that Exodus passage. This is one of those watershed moments when everything changes. It's one of the few places in the entire Bible where God describes himself where he essentially says, this is what I'm like. Think of it as God's self-disclosure statement, his press release to the world. That's kind of cool, isn't it? And, and if you do the homework in this, uh, I couldn't quite verify if it actually is the most quoted passage of the Bible by the Bible itself, but there are references and allusions to this passage everywhere in the scripture. And it's that significant for a very specific reason 
And the reason is that God revealed to us his name. His name. Now, whether you know the Bible uh, or, or are new to it, it's, it's a great exercise to go back and read through the book of Exodus to track the development of the relationship between God and Moses. It's a really cool thing to do. So uh, God and Moses first kind of meet up at the burning bush. Moses sees this bush burning that's not consumed and, and he and God have an interaction and God sends him on an assignment to go back to the Israelites. This is the Cliff Notes version. Read it for yourself. God, God sends him on an assignment to go back to the Israelites and, and Moses says, yeah, I'll do that, but what if they ask me, who sent you? What shall I say? And God says, tell them I am who I am sent you. So that's kind of cryptic, right? I am who I am. It, me, it means that who God is is who God will always be. God is unchanging. So whatever God is like now, God will be like always. I am who I am. And then, and then God said, and if that doesn't work, you know, just tell them that the God of their father sent you. So Moses does that, and, and the story continues, and there are plagues that come upon Egypt where they were held captive, and then there's the, the flight from Egypt, the escape. God leads them out. And then God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, the Ten Commandments and other law. And in Exodus, that's chapters uh, uh, 20 through 31. God, Moses was up there a while, right? Um, and not just figuratively, literally, he was up there a while. So long that the Israelites down in the valley were kind of like, hey, where is this guy? What's going on? We, you know, we need a God. Hey, Aaron, could you brew us up something? So Aaron makes this golden calf for them and they're bowing down to worship it and God knows about it and he's peeved and he says, hey, look, I'm done with these people. Moses intercedes and uh, God relents. Moses comes down the mountain. He's so mad at the golden calf that he takes the two, two stone tablets upon which the law was etched by God and in his frustration he just goes, and they break into a million pieces, which is like, what? You threw, you threw down the tablets? And Moses continued to intercede for the people. And as he did that, he met with God in the tent of meeting. And during that time, he said this to God. If you are pleased with me, teach me your, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. To which God responded, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then we get to the passage we read today. And here are verses five through seven again. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents, of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, just in reading that, you think that God's name is the Lord because that's what's there in the text. But there's much more to the story. And hang with me for just like 30 seconds here because this gets kind of technical, but it's worth it. Out of fear of misusing God's name, a la the third commandment, Hebrew people stopped saying the name of God out loud. They stopped speaking it 
as a kind of hedge of protection to keep from ever possibly misusing it. And they would, instead of saying God's name, replace the name with a title. And there were, there were multiple titles, but the most common of the titles was the, the, the word Adonai, which means Lord in, in Hebrew. So it became common to call God Lord. But that's not really God's name. It's a title, right? Uh, it's not really a name at all. And, and beyond that, God is not God's name either. The word God is, is really a more conceptual uh, uh, word than personal word. And if capitalized, it refers conceptually to the almighty being who made and rules the universe, right? Now, those translating the scriptures into English carried on the tradition of not writing out God's name, but they left us a cue for when the actual name of God appeared in the original text. If you're reading your Bibles and you see Lord in all capitals like that, it means that in the original Hebrew was written the real name of God. Now, it didn't quite, in the translation from my sermon notes to slides, it didn't quite come across because in your Bibles, you will see all capitals, but the L will be a larger font size and the O-R-D will be a smaller font size, but they will be capitals. So this is just a, you need to know this, right? When you see that, all caps, bigger font size L, smaller font size O-R-D, that means what's in the original text is the actual name of God, right? And if you're, if you're reading and you see Lord with just the first letter capitalized, that means what's in the original text is a title for God, not God's actual name. Now, you might be thinking, why does any of this matter? Or what is God's name, actually? That's God's name. Uh, there's a lot more technical stuff here, but I'll spare you that. Most likely pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh. And, okay, technical stuff done. You can take a breath. Why does it matter? Uh, it matters because for Hebrew people, names were crucially important. They didn't just pick cute names for their kids. They didn't just pick meaningful names for their kids. They didn't just pick names that linked that child to their family heritage. The name was understood to convey something essential about the, the person, the little human right there. It was a character claim. It revealed their identity. This was who this kid is, a name carried with it, the, the essentials of that person. So if we forget that God has a name, we forget that God has revealed to us something essential about who he is. His name is not God. His name is not the Lord. His name is Yahweh. And the name Yahweh reveals that God is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who God is. That's who Yahweh is. God has a name. 
God is not a religious idea or spiritual thought. Yahweh is a person. And this is what Yahweh is like. I mean, let your soul and spirit, your whole being marinate in the, the truths of who Yahweh is. Compassionate. Is there any area of life in which you are in need of compassion? Gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Anybody in need of that? I mean, that's who Yahweh is. But, But we can't miss the last and very important characteristic of Yahweh. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Ouch. In the big story of the Bible, that moves us from who God is to what God did, which is the work the New Testament describes. Here are some verses from John again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Then on to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word in this passage, capital W, means the creator God who made everything, and that Word became flesh and blood made his dwelling among us. The, point, the whole point here is that Yahweh, who told us his name back in Exodus, became a human being in Jesus. So not only is Yahweh compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiving, he showed up in person to fix our problem. Our problem is that we don't just feel guilty, we are guilty. And that Yahweh does not leave the guilty unpunished. So this seems like an irreconcilable problem to us. We're guilty, but Yahweh doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. But the good news of the big story of the Bible is that the reason Yahweh came in person as Jesus was to be our substitute, to stand in our place and and take what was due to us upon himself. And to understand the big story of the Bible, you have to rewind all the way back to Genesis 15 where God appeared to Abram in in a vision. And this is what's known as the cutting of the covenant. So if you're less familiar with the Bible, the story goes like this. Abram fell asleep and in his um, sleep, God gave him this vision. And the vision was of an animal that had been cut, kind of think of a sheep here with the head here and and the back here. If you sliced it in half this way, the cutting of a covenant back in that day, two parties entering a covenant would take the sheep like that. They would slit its throat and let it bleed out 
in a puddle, and then they would slice the animal in half this way, and put half on this side and half on that side. And then the parties would stand on opposite sides of the blood, and they would take turns walking through the blood and, and saying, meeting up with the other person. And, and that would mean, may it be to me like it was to this animal if I break the stipulations of this covenant. Then the other person would walk through the blood, meaning the same thing. May it be to me like it was to this animal if I break the stipulations of this covenant. So we're, we're covenant people. We live in covenant with God. The only problem is, we didn't keep the covenant. So the covenant demanded that it be to us like it was to that animal. Enter Jesus. And this is what I love. I mean, when you read the, the big story of the Bible through this understanding, every piece falls into its proper place and the whole story makes sense. And I can't do the whole thing today, but just think about the Palm Sunday story. And I, I love a particular wondering about that story. We call it the triumphal entry, but I wonder if it wasn't really the not so triumphant entry. Because Jesus came down the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of Jerusalem to the old golden gate, the, the great eastern gate, and tradition said that when the Messiah arrived, he would enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate. So here comes Jesus down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley up and you know all, all the all his followers thought he was going to kick the Romans out and take over. And if you've, if you've been around the church, you, you know this story. Um, but, of course, he wasn't that kind of king. They, their expectation was way off. They were expecting something that they, they really wanted, but wasn't what they really needed. So Jesus comes down, and, and this is the speculation part. We're not sure about this. But I just wonder if when he was riding that donkey, he got right to that golden gate, the great eastern gate, and instead of plowing right through it, like the Messiah was supposed to, I wonder if he got, like hopped off and walked the 300 yards north along the wall to the service entrance, known as the sheep gate, where they would take into the inner city all of the animals that would be sacrificed during the Passover. I just wonder if he kind of stopped and walked up there and just entered the city through that gate. Because in my mind, that would be just like him. And, and, and everyone would have been left there thinking, wait, the, the king isn't supposed to enter through the sheep gate. He's supposed to enter through the big awesome gate. I mean, the king's not a lamb. Is he? And sure enough, Jesus came to become like that animal because we didn't keep our end of the covenant. The king became a lamb, our lamb, my lamb, your lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, said John the Baptist. Re remember, the, the wording of our communion liturgy. Whenever we come to the table, we say that we come in remembrance that Jesus was sent of the Father into the world to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, the stipulations of the covenant, even 
to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Because we didn't keep our end of the covenant, a sacrifice was required. Right? So what we have here in the New Testament, what God did for us is God is so compassionate and gracious and forgiving, and yet he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. He came to earth in the person of Jesus to keep our end of the covenant for us. So God keeps his end of the covenant and sneaks around to our side in Jesus to keep our end of the covenant for us. And our end was death. Death on the cross, the shedding of his blood in our place, such that the covenant stipulations can be perfectly fulfilled and we can live in forever freedom uh, with God. I mean, that's, that's the big story of the Bible. And we're so often focused on some thin slice. I mean, I hope, the, I hope the big story gets through, but we just need to pause every once in a while and talk about the big story. And because Pastor Brian set the standard last week of using a whiteboard, I could not let him be cooler than me because you are cool when you use a whiteboard. I think somebody said maybe you're just retro when you use a whiteboard. That's probably more like the case. So here's the thing. In this world, there is brokenness. I thought that would get in the way. Thank you, whoever just did that. Uh, There's brokenness, and it does not take long to learn that. It's in you, it's in me, looking around. The world is broken. We're broken. Uh, Stuff isn't right. Stuff goes sideways all the time. But that's not the way God originally designed the world. God's original design was a design of beauty. You know, we read in Genesis, God created and and it was good. (laughs) And it was good. And it was good. The things God created were good. And and when God made human beings, he looked at at that creation and he said, this is very good. Not just kind of good, very good. So there's brokenness in the world, but it's not the way God created it to be. So how did it get like this? The Bible says it got like this because of sin. And that's our walking away from God, our walking away from the beauty of God's original design and striking out on our own to try to do this by ourselves. So there's beauty and brokenness. We walked away and sin entered the world, but Yahweh is so compassionate and gracious and wants us, wants us back that he made a way out. Oh, not really a way out, a way back. And that is through a a new birth, a spiritual new birth. Jesus talked about this, uh, that we need to be born again. And remember, he got peppered with questions about what does that actually mean? It means being born back into the life you were created to, to have. And the way that we move from brokenness to birth is through what Jesus has done for us and placing our trust in what he did rather than what we're doing to fix our own brokenness. And if you look around, it's evident that we're doing a lot to try to fix our own brokenness, right? There's religion. There's uh, 
success, go for the gold, right? Uh, there's relationships. If I just find the right person, everything will be better. We try to anesthetize it with alcohol or, and drugs, right? And, and you can do this. It's not hard, right? We're trying to get out of this in a million different ways, but nothing will return us to here. The only way back to here is through here. Placing our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Gives us new birth. And then, like I mentioned in our time of confession today, we are engaged in a lifelong process of becoming more and more the people God called us to be. This is a process of becoming that's guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's really the thing, right? We're invited back into God's beauty through what Jesus has done for us to save us from our own wickedness and sin and rebellion as the Exodus text put it. So, the move, the move here, by the way, isn't magic. The move here is simply saying, yeah, I'm broken. Yeah, I've tried a hundred different things to fix it. Uh, yeah, my hundred different things not only haven't worked, but very likely might have made it worse. And yeah, I keep turning to those things even though I know they don't work. One definition of insanity, right? doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. There's really only one way. And it's not that Christians are kind of arrogant or prideful in claiming that Jesus is the only way. We just say that because that's what he said. He just said, look, I came to bring you back. You can't do it on your own. There's only one way, and that's when God comes and says, hey, come on back and do it this way. And that's what Jesus did. So this move is us placing our trust, our reliance, I often use the leaning example, like right now I'm trusting the floor, but now I'm trusting the piano. It's that transfer of trust. Put your weight down on what Jesus has done for us. And then we pray and read the Bible and get in community with other believers and engage this whole process of becoming. That's what we're doing here, right? Becoming more the people God created us to be. So if you haven't done that, uh, I invite you to that. We as a church invite you to that. No arm twisting, I promise. It's just the message of Jesus. And it stands as an invitation to us all, all the time. Come back to the beauty. Step away from the brokenness. Come back to the beauty through the new birth that Jesus offers us. And I have some pictures to share with you today of a man that we'll call Jahan. That's not his real name because we can't share his real name. He came through our, um, our refugee ministry, and we're now calling that our, uh, our former refugee ministry team is now the Friends of Refugees team, which I like much better. Uh, uh, led very well uh, by brothers Sam and Dave. And Jahan, the man in the plaid shirt there with his back to us, uh, through that process, was struck by the overwhelming love 
he experienced. And he asked Brother Sam, what's the deal with that? I've been showered with love. And Brother Sam said, it's Jesus. He motivates what we do as a church. And Jahan said, I would like to become a follower of Jesus. And Brother Sam led him to Christ. Yeah, amen. And you can see the picture. We were about right here on Friday when we baptized him. And I'm sorry, I wish we could have done it here. We couldn't because of security reasons, because he comes from a Muslim family, none of whom know what he did on Friday. In fact, we created a baptism certificate, which he did not feel comfortable even taking home. So Brother Sam is holding it for him to remind him of this day and his commitment. Some of us, you probably recognize some faces here. Some of us were here. Not a dry eye in the house. Beautiful. But it's, it's, right? God is doing this. And we're invited. It's not just other people like Jahan. You are invited. Everybody gets to play, right? You're, you're welcome to come home. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for the, the truth of the gospel. Thank you that you are not only our good, good, loving Heavenly Father, but the King of the universe, of all things, powerful to advance your purposes in this world and gracious to invite us to join you in them. Father, I pray that your message, your, your grace, your mercy would permeate our hearts no matter where we are right now. Please let no human barrier stand in the way, no fumbling of the, of the organized church in the past. We want to look at you, Jesus, listen to what you said, and respond to you. So would you clear away the, the noise and speak clearly? We know you're speaking an invitation and we want to respond to that. Thank you, God, for your goodness to us. We love you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.